Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. And for today's Culture Club, we're joined by a man who next week will be heading off to the Oscars, hoping to win yet again, because he is from Element Pictures. He is producer and founder of Element Pictures, and in the Oscars, Poor Things is expected to be a very strong contender in a number of categories, having already won two Golden Globes, five BAFTAs, and has 11 Oscar nominations. Ed Guiney, how much are you looking forward to going to the Oscars? I'm I'm really looking forward to it, um, but I'm also looking forward to the end of the journey. I mean, this all started last, uh, beginning of last August when we premiered, sorry, September, when we premiered Poor Things in Venice. So it's kind of a six-month, it's a quasi-political campaign, you know, in terms of turning up to different award ceremonies and pressing, pressing the flesh and advocating for the film. Uh, so I think we're all very happy to be going to LA next week, but we're all happy to now tell us the end of it. Why did you pick it up? Because as producer, you were responsible for financing it and then staging it, giving the director and the actors and casting and the rest of it. I love it. I've seen it and I think it is absolutely hilarious. I can see why it would be for everybody. There's some people who might take offence at it, but it's not just Emma Stone's performance, which I think is likely to win her the Oscar and she's magnificent in it. But the whole look of it and the feel of it is just absolutely terrific, but it is mad. So why did you decide, yeah, this will work, I'll make a movie out of this? Well, uh, Yorgos first mentioned it to us, I guess, around the time of The Lobster, maybe just after we... This is the director. Yeah, Yorgos Lanthimos, um, with whom we've now made five movies. We've shot another one that's about to come out or come out later this year. Um, but he he said he'd read this book, he'd met Alistair Gray, the novelist of Poor Things, and um, and that he wanted to make a movie out of it. And, and Andrew Lowe, my partner, and I, and some of our colleagues read the book. And as you're, you're right to say, it's mad. It is mad. But I suppose very often the way we think about things is is in terms of the person rather than the specific project. And we at that point, we're kind of... Uh, we'd worked with Yorgos, loved working with him, knew that he was a brilliant filmmaker. And so the fact that he wanted to do it was was enough for us to kind of say, well, let's just try, let's let's get on with it. And, you know, when you commit to something like that, you don't necessarily know how you're going to get there. You don't know how you're actually going to realise it and get the thing made. And I suppose it was by, you know, making a bunch of movies with Yorgos significantly the favourite, which also got a bunch of Oscar nominations. Which I'd say I rewatched again recently and it stands up as brilliantly the second time round. Fantastic performances and just really funny. Good, good. No, and so it was the success of that and the fact that Yorgos and Emma met on that film and formed this kind of collaboration and this partnership. And, and so then after the favourite, Yorgos mentioned to her that he wanted to make poor things. She put her hand up for it. And it was really sort of those two things that meant that we could make it because it's not a cheap movie and by far the biggest thing we've done. So it was a bit of a swing. And how difficult is it actually to get financing and to get the distributors to take a movie which is as out there as Poor Things is? I mean, in a way, it's those two things I said. The fact that, you know, The Favourite did very well at the box office and had a load of Oscar nominations and the fact that Emma Stone, who's one of the biggest stars in the world, wanted to do it. They were the things that kind of convinced um, our distributors. And actually, it was the same people that we worked with on The Favourite. It was Searchlight, which is owned by Disney and Film 4 in the UK, the same partners. So we'd all work together. And as with everything in life, if you've had a success with someone, you've good relationship with well, they want to continue it. And so they did. They And they took a very big swing to, to back the movie. Like, it was not an obvious one. So hats you, off to them. The, the business is how many years old now at this stage? God, it's old. Like we're uh, we're 2001, so it was kind of the Magdalene Sisters was the first movie we had back in 2001. Andrew and I 
formed element back then. And you've sold part of the business now, mm-hmm. haven't you? Yeah, we sold uh, a majority stake to Fremantle, which is a British-based company, but owned by um, Bertelsmann in Germany, which is a big German conglomerate. So, um, yeah. So, and what's that like now, no longer being essentially in control of your own business, being a minority partner? Well, it actually makes very little difference because their kind of approach is to um, invest in labels, you know, around the world. Um and to really let them do their own thing. So the value know. in the business is a lot of what you and Andrew bring to it, isn't it? So you mean it, it doesn't really have a value if you're not putting your expertise and that of the team you've assembled around you to work? Um, that's, part, that's a large part of it. And also, I guess, the kind of back catalogue of things that we've done that can be exploited going forward. There's a value in that, if you like. And also, there is a value in the kind of, as you say, the expertise and the team that we've built up over time. Um but we're, you know, we, we, we took the investment with a view to growing, not to, not to kind of um, buying a yacht or doing anything like that. And of course, I should also mention, you're the people who brought normal people to the screen as well, to the small screen, which presumably has also helped open doors for doing lots of other things. Yeah, no, it's, it, it has. Now, normal people was, you know, was a kind of lockdown success. It was sort of the stars aligned to, to, to mean that that film, or that series at least did, you know, did, did very well internationally. Um, but you know, like it's it's every project you do kind of builds on what you've done before, and you know uh, we're hoping to do lots of things into the future. So, but what drives you in projects? Is it to make money out of them, or is it you're immediately shaking your head in the negative and that, or is it to really bring things that you think that others might not make to the screen? You know what? It's actually it's a little bit like what I said about Yorgos earlier on. It's really about our personal relationships and our friendships. And you know, obviously, another very long-standing relationship is with Lenny Abrahamson, who I was in college with a million years ago, and we made short films together. And in a sense, it's like with Lenny or Yorgos or you know Joanna Hogg or Paddy Bernard or any number of people that we work with. You're you're kind of committed to working with them, and then you're talking about what they want to make, and you're kind of uh, trying to enable that and allow that to happen. Um, and, and the reason I was shaking my head is whenever we've done things because we think it's a smart commercial proposition or there's a gap in the market or we've started thinking that way, we've actually largely failed. And and it's actually trying to find the thing that you're excited to talk to someone else about and that you can see po- possibilities around and then trying to enable that. Does that suggest that AI is not going to be as big a part in the creative process in the future as people have been saying? Because AI is fine at working at things that have worked in the past, but generative AI will not actually anticipate the human input that makes things different that will be grabbed upon by viewers in the future. I think, I mean, I, you know, my, my head spins around the whole AI thing, really. And, and like, I, I sometimes when I hear people talk about it, it literally blows my mind because it feels like everything's going to change so fundamentally. But I like to think at least that um, when it comes to the new, the original, the brave, the bold, the kind of the pioneering in all forms of human endeavour, that that's where AI is going to fail. And that's in a way where humans are most self-actualized. So I'm hoping <laughs> that that's, you know, that, that, that that means that there is room for a kind of you know, great artists to continue to work in. Because AI could never have written a novel like Poor Things or have brought it to the screen in the way that it has been brought to screen, could it? No, it's probably true. I mean, one of my colleagues quite recently asked AI to write a scene from Normal People, what 
Connell and Marianne, like a kind of just whatever one of those scenes. Yeah. And actually it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great either. It really yeah. wasn't. It wouldn't have passed muster with our script editors, let me put it that way. Let's get to your Culture Club choices. And uh, it's not just movies we're talking about or books, but we always start with music. And we always ask everybody uh, to nominate what they remember as being the first piece of music or first single, given your age, that uh, they bought. And you have a great choice from the late 1970s. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, when you're asked to give your favourite this or that or anything, it's completely sort of in the moment. And I was panicking yesterday just trying to come up with stuff. But I I do remember buying um, the EP Out of Control uh, a million years ago and uh, um, absolutely loving it. And I, re- I bought it because we used to go to this roller disco out near out in Shank Hill and, they, and go around holding hands with people uh, in a circle for a Saturday afternoon. That was our thing. Uh, and I remember first hearing it out there and then I bought the single afterwards, so... Let's hear a bit of you 2 out of control. associated with roller discos. Well, they are. It was. It's the first place I heard it, for sure. Okay, favourite album. And we know that most people find it very, very hard to actually pick one out. So you gave us a list, and that's okay. Tell us a few of what you got. Well, um, two of the albums I kind of always return to um, are Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, and Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. They're just, they've been around for a long time, and so I've kind of listened to them consistently over time um and then i guess it's um you know when i was a teenager and in my 20s bowie and talking heads and the cure and psychedelic furs and those sorts of bands were the things that i listened to and do you still go back to that music or do you listen to more contemporary music i am um, i'm i'm not as avid a kind of music like i don't search music out in the way that i used to when i was when i was much younger like i don't buy albums i'm i'm on spotify and i just sort of and I let my um, my son choose what we listen to a lot, so that's a whole other kind of generation of stuff. Um, so I kind of, I probably lost... Could you even identify what he has you listening to? Um, like things like Peggy Goo and, you know, uh, Dua Lipa and, um, you know, that the, yeah. that kind of dance music. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's sort of... you. you I mean, there, you, the other one that, that I re- remember so well um, from... 
being a kid was I don't know the name of the album but the Boomtown Rats album where I, I I don't like Mondays and Rat Trap were on that album I don't remember the name of the album but um, we had neighbours and myself and my brother used to go in and we would listen to it literally every night there was three or four boys in that house and we would just sit around listening to it on repeat endlessly so those things kind of you know lo- loom large in my memory for sure We're going to play a little bit of Marvin Gaye though from the 1971 album What's Going On I'll ask you a bit more about it when we've heard a little bit of What's Happening Brother I think it's just so. Um, I mean, listening to on your wonderful uh, system here, it's such a it's such a gorgeous song. Um, I don't know. It sort of it speaks about sort of possibilities. And I suppose maybe when I uh, first went to the states, uh, it was a lot later than when that album came out. But somehow I associate with the kind of um, I don't know the kind of ease and the sunshine of that album. Um, I remember being on a scout years ago with Lenny Abramson we were, we were scouting for for Frank the movie that Michael Fassbender was in the head in um, and uh, being in New Orleans um, and hearing hearing Marvin Gaye blast out on whatever the jazz street is it French street or whatever Bourbon street Bourbon street yeah 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 and just that kind of being a really um, yeah just being just yeah we were in good form on a kind of on a hunt for for locations and yeah it was all very atmospheric okay well you sort of mentioned some of your favorite bands and artists you've given us a great list of gigs yeah and i'm interested in these actually because so the, the earliest one that you remember is thin lizzy and slain in 1981 yeah and i was pretty young then i was in my teens um and i think you too supported them and um, I, I remember as a kid that you know, um, on Grafton Street, you'd often see Phil in it wandering up and down. You know, he was sort of a, he was a kind of a presence and um, and and a, a kind of, uh, I suppose, the first Irish rock star that I knew of, at least. But he sort of also felt felt accessible and very much part of the fabric of of um, of of the city. And I think I saw them a few times as a kid. I saw them in the RDS as well. And I love the energy and I love the kind of bravado and I loved his charm and his kind of kind of machismo, but there was a real wing to it. There felt like there was a kind of, there was a complicity and there was a gentleness to it. It didn't feel like the kind of wrong side of macho, if, if I can put it that way. And then you also have the likes of the Psychedelic Furs in New York in 1986. Why that? Well, I was a student in, I did the J1 thing. I was in Trinity and uh, I went to New York for the summer and was very bad at selling 
Dove Bar ice creams on the streets of New York. I always got the worst perch because the worst salesperson got the worst perch, least likely to move up the the kind of um, the the ladder. But uh, sorry, just explain me, Boris. You were selling ice creams where on the street in New York. But but depending on how good an ice cream salesperson yeah. you were, you got like a good place to sell. Where so you this get lots be started around Times Square, exactly, or, something like or, that, or in my case, not Times Square, like quite <laughs> far away from Times Square, uh, over over kind of near uh, the Hudson and. There was not much traffic there, so you didn't sell many Dove bars, so you didn't get to move up the ranks and move closer to Times Square, if you like. Um, but I was there with a bunch of friends, and it was a great summer, and I went with my great friend Paul Hickey to see the Psychedelic Furs, who played just on a kind of a... It was a sort of old pier, um, you know, jutting into the Hudson, and, uh, yeah, we were huge fans, and uh, it was a beautiful, I guess, August night in New York and very memorable. And you then have the cure from the RDS in 1989. Yeah, um, again, um, I was a huge, huge fan of the cure back in those days. And um, yeah, it was, they were, they were brilliant live. I'm, I sort of regret not having seen them. I've, I know they're still playing live. I regret not seeing them more recently, but uh, yeah, they were, they were, they were, yeah. That was L- let's hear a little bit of The Cure. This is more recently, this is in London in 2018 from the live album uh, Curation 25. Let's a bit of From There to Here. Secure. And one last one when it comes to gigs, a much more recent one from last year at Trinity College, Kraftwerk. Yeah, I mean, Kraftwerk was a, a band that I absolutely loved as well. Um, and actually, my brother, I, I don't, I sort of given up going to gigs, which is, you know, a, a real pity. And my brother bought tickets to see um, Kraftwerk at Open Air in Trinity in, in last summer. And it was absolutely brilliant. They were incredible. Um, and, and uh, yeah, really made me want to go back to, to, to more and more concerts, but also just I thought I thought it was just a phenomenal performance. It was utterly mesmerizing. Of course, full of people of my generation and age, like older, you know, old, older middle aged people, but having a great time and there was a great vibe there and it was a, just a lovely summer's night. Ed, steady on, just say middle aged. Don't say older <laughs> middle aged because you made me feel older as well. We need to take a break. Ed Guiney from Element, who of course the producers of Poor Things, which is going to win Oscars, I think next week in Hollywood, the week after next, is with us for the Culture Club and we're going to get to movies and books and television and things when we come back after this break. Welcome back. Ed Guiney, the producer and founder of Element Pictures, is with us for the Culture Club. So let's get to movies and your selection of favourite movies is an interesting one, which I was only thinking of recently uh, when Ryan O'Neill died 
because he'd been in here for an interview about 10 years ago when I think there might have been a re-showing of Barry Lyndon, which he was a star of. And he was actually one of the nicest people who's actually come into the studio. He was really, really engaging and charismatic. Um, but tell us about this movie, Barry Lyndon, and why you've nominated it as your favourite. Well, again, it's one of those movies that I sort of feel has been present um, for you know, lots of my life. I mean, I started um, I started watching movies as a teenager because I, I had a friend who maybe had one of the first VHSs or maybe it was in fact a Betamax player in those days. The technology that was supposed to be better but lost out to the VHS. Exactly. And, um, and this was such an exotic thing. It was incredible, like the idea that you could... Um, rent movies and watch what you wanted at will, which of course to people now is astounding that you can't, but, and there was a great, great video store on Baggett Street called Metropolis, which is one of the first video stores in Dublin. That was a complete Aladdin's cave. They had amazing, amazing movies there. So we used to go in and we'd rent three or four movies and we'd watch them all through the night. And that, so it was that kind of, I suppose, from 15 to 18 when I left school that I, I, myself and my friend just used to watch movie after movie after movie. It's probably the first time that I saw um, um, Barry Lyndon. And then I saw it again because we had it probably when you were referring to Ryan and Neil, we had it in the lighthouse about, uh, probably about 10 years ago. It was 2014 as I looked this up recently, yeah, and I think it was he organised for him to come into us, yeah. Well, that, 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 that took, and I remember I popped in at the beginning of the movie just to, to sort of see the beginning and ended up standing there for, for the whole, like, just leaning up against the... For the, the three and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. Completely mesmerised by it again. And it's, it's, such a, it's such a stunning film, and he's incredible in it. But the other thing that I loved about it, and I do love about it as well, even though it's not obviously set in Ireland, it was made here. So I love spotting kind of all the old Abbey actors, and I love watching the credits at the end, and the kind of... I suppose a lot of the people in the credits in the end roll are, are people that were around when I first started in the business. So, you know, the kind of transport people and the production managers and the electricians and all that kind of stuff. So there's a kind of, there's an extra connection to the film. Uh, Directed by Stanley Kubrick, wasn't of it? Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have a clip from it where uh, Barry Lydon is robbed by highwaymen. There must be 20 guineas in gold here, Father. Well, well, well. You seem to be a very well set up young gentleman, sir. Captain Feeney, that's all the money my mother had in the world. Mightn't I be allowed to keep it? I'm just one step ahead of the law myself. I killed an English officer in a duel and I'm on my way to Dublin till things cool down. Mr. Barry, in my profession, we hear many such stories. Yours is one of the most intriguing and touching I've heard in many weeks. Nevertheless, I'm afraid I cannot grant your request. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll allow you to keep those fine pair of boots, which in normal circumstances I would have for myself. The next town is only five miles away, and I suggest you now start walking. Mightn't I be allowed to keep my horse? I should like to oblige you, but with people like us, we must be able to travel faster than our clients. Good day, young sir. What's it all about, just for people who haven't, aren't familiar with it? Sorry, the What's movie, the movie all about? It's a kind of um, this, 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 the the kind of picaresque journey of this kind of diffident, slightly dislocated character played by um, Ryan O'Neill, as you say, Barry Lyndon. And there's a kind of there's something very um, touching about him, and very um, I don't know. I find the film very moving as very as well as 
very uh, beautiful to watch and I, I'm, it makes me really think I need to watch it again uh, hearing that I need to. I'm also fascinated that you have on your list a movie which I thought if the saying is if it was to be made today it might only last for about two minutes Blazing Saddles <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's Mel Brooks um, Cowboy Western Yeah, think, but a sort of a skit on the Cowboy Western and um, yeah, do you mean that it's sort of, it would just... Politically would, incorrect yeah, sense yeah, of humour yeah. and nearly every joke yeah, would be banned. Yeah, probably that's true. Although I kind of feel like that maybe there was a kind of, um, there was a kind of an awareness in that and that um, Brooks, maybe it's a, maybe in my memory at least, it's a slightly more progressive film than your... Oh, I you're think implying. it is. I don't, yeah. but I think people look at it without actually realising the satter behind Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly that. Um and so in a way, probably quite advanced for that time. But again, when I was came across it as a teenager, it was just one of those movies. That and Animal House. Do you remember Animal yeah. House? Just used to watch them on repeat just and know all the sayings and tell all the jokes and, you know, a bit Monty Python as well. Those kinds of films. You also have Do the Right Thing. That's the Spike Lee movie. Yeah, Spike Lee's second movie, I think. And um, I don't know, if the, around that time there was kind of like, um, you know, there was, there was, there was a, there's a kind of a wave of lower budget American films like there was there was Clerks the Kevin Smith movie there was a Brothers McMullen there was a whole bunch of these films and I guess I was just thinking about trying to make films at that time and Spike Lee wrote um, he, he had made She's Gotta Have It I think that was his first movie and he wrote a diary about the making of it and then he wrote a diary about Do the Right Thing and I just found the, the kind of the diaries along with the movies incredibly inspiring because he was just in a way, starting out. And, and current day movies, you've nominated one which I think you might be up against in the Oscars, haven't you? You love a zone of interest. Zone, yeah. it's an ama- I mean, I think uh, John Glazer is one of the best filmmakers working anywhere uh, today. He doesn't make movies very often. Um, this is 10 years in the making, um, but it's an incredible film and one of the best films I've seen in years, I think. And yes, we are competing with it, but uh, still no. A really great film. Okay, favourite play or musical or theatre show? You've gone for something where I think Killian Murphy made his name, didn't he? Disco Pigs. Yeah, again, you know, when you're asked to favourite, I, I mean, I've no idea. But what I, I do, I, and I guess maybe because Killian's in the ether at the moment, um, but I remember seeing um, Disco Pigs in the Dublin Theatre Festival, very near your studio here, just around the corner and behind Peter's Pub, there was a theatre there, and I saw it in the Dublin Theatre Festival, um, and I was really blown away by um, by the performances um, and by Enda Walsh's writing actually and, and, and having, I mean I, was, I guess it was one of the first films that I saw in the theatre and then subsequently developed and made into a feature film which, which Carson Sheridan directed um, also with Killian but uh, I just remember the kind of the, just the excitement of being in the room with that play and with those actors it was uh, really intoxicating we have a clip where Pig, played by Killian Murphy, arrives at Runtz, played by Elaine Cassidy, at her new school on their 17th birthday and asks her to leave with him. Hey. Hey. Happy birthday, Runtz. Happy birthday, Pig. by myself it's like a big rescue in here right is this the palace 
cazzo Und jetzt kill it down, Jan. Happy birthday for today, then, Sinead. For today. Okay. Conscious of time, so I'm going to have to move on to television. And um, what did you watch when you were growing up? When you were watching all of those movies, four movies a night, did you have time for television? Yeah, I mean, I I remember um, th- one thing that I remember very well was the television adaptation of *Brideshead Revisited*. Um, Jeremy Irons and Anthony Andrews, directed by Charles Sturridge, who I then subsequently worked with. Um, but I remember that just as being such a stylish, gorgeous. Um, really seductive it was a really seductive world it was kind of you know you really wanted to be in I don't know if it was Oxford or Cambridge whichever one it was back in those days but um, but I, I thought it was yeah absolutely brilliant and I I, re- I always remember that and, and uh, as, as something that stood out and then from modern day television <laughs> I mean it's very hard not to talk about succession um, which I I kind of can watch on repeat and I'm um, enormous fan of and, and actually one of the very nice things about um, the kind of the Oscars thing and all that is you, you you know you you sometimes coincide with the the TV people as well. They're kind of like the AFI ten TV shows of the year and the ten movies of the year. And we ended up sitting just next to the succession table um, earlier this year, and um, it was great to miss to meet Jesse Armstrong, who I'm a big fan of. And it's it's great you get it you get to actually sort of talk to people and commune with them a bit. And it's sort of even if you're a massive fan, you can kind of slightly hide that. And you also like the bear. Love the bear. Absolutely love it. Again, a table that was very near us. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fantastic show and sort of such an unlikely pitch. I don't know if someone came in to me and said, I want to make a drama set in a restaurant. I don't know that I'd be like biting their hand off, but they do it so brilliantly and I can't wait to see the next season. Okay, um, we have a clip. We have a clip where Olivia Coleman playing Chef Terry and Ebon Mosbarak as Richie in episode seven of season two of The Bear. How'd you get the money to open? Um, well, my dad had died the summer before, an only child. My mum sold the house and put it in here. Oh, family business. Yeah. You close with your mom? Yeah, she's my best friend. You? My best friend's mom was like my mom. Yeah. What about your dad? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <close> to yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I learned the most about him. When I was packing up his house, all his belongings, like his whole life, and I found this stash of pocket notebooks that he must have taken with him when he was on tour, and full of all these details, like the palm trees he'd seen, or escargot he'd tried, or this time the ocean looked purple. And um, the way he wrote everything, it was like a reminder, like, uh, don't forget this moment, or don't forget this interesting, strange detail. Hundreds of these entries, Chef Terry. And he'd, he'd sign each one off the same way every time. Chef? Yes, Chef. I know upstairs. Oh, thank you, Chef. Don't be a stranger, Richie. Say hi to Carmen for me. Yeah, we'll do. Thank you. He believes in you, you know. <laughs> what makes you say that? He told me. He said you're good with people. 
It's not wrong. The Bear. Great scene. Okay, very quickly. You've definitely picked a book for us for your favourite book of author that we have never had nominated before because how many people do you reckon have got to the end of Tolstoy's War and Peace? Um, well, I, I read it when I was in the States, I don't know, probably about 15 years ago. I absolutely loved it. I, I don't know. I, 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 the, the thing that I have to admit is that I've tried to reread it again and I haven't been able to get into it. And I think my con- concentration is shot, actually, you know, and some of the books... That, um, Name of the Rose is another one I remember loving and I returned to recently and I, I found it really dense. It's a hard read. Yeah, it, it is, but I sort of... A great movie, yeah, but a hard read of a book. Amazing movie. Same with Anna Karen and another Tolstoy, but I absolutely um, loved War and Peace and I'd love to think that I'd be able to read it again, but so far I haven't managed. And to finish, we asked for something completely different, something that people might not be aware of, and you've offered uh, photographs. Yeah, so um, Evelyn... Hoffer, I think she was American, but may have been German. Anyway, she's a photographer who came to Dublin. She travelled the world, took amazing pictures. And um, I recently saw an exhibition of her uh, photographs at the Photographic photo, photographic Gallery in London, just off Oxford Street. And she's these beautiful pictures of Dublin from the 60s, of characters and kind of cityscapes. And there's one of Dublin in 1966, which is kind of, I don't know where it's taken from. It looks like it's sort of, it's an elevation from somewhere down near the docks. Um, but looking right down the Liffey, if you like, and um, that's the year I was born, uh, just to date myself. But what's what I same find, as me, so we're in oh, similar right. in vintage. But what really strikes me about it is it looks so old. The city looks so old. It's very smoggy and almost sepia. You should check out the picture. It's a great picture. Um, but so yeah, I just you know I think I found them fascinating to look at. And there's a book actually, Evan Hopper's Hoffer's Dublin, which you can buy. Just great old pictures. And, Ed Guiney, it has been great having you for the Culture Club. Thank you so much. I hope you fill your boots when you get to the Oscars uh, the week after next for Poor Things and look forward to your future uh, productions as well. And also, I just mentioned as well, just very briefly, because we're about to tell us a little bit about Story House. Oh, yes, yeah, Story House is a new um, festival that we're running at the end of March at the Lighthouse, 21st and 22nd, and it's really about bringing the best screenwriters in the world to Dublin. So we've Tony McNamara from Poor Things, we've David Nichols um, one day, we have two great young British filmmakers, Molly Manning-Walker, Charlotte Regan, and Arthur Hariri, who wrote Anatomy of a Hall, Fall, another Oscar. We might come back yes. to that before you have the festival. Ed Guiney, thank you very much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-